Please be seated. Good morning. It is lovely to see you. Welcome to you folks here and uh, to those joining us on the live stream. Now, why on earth are we going to spend the next six Sunday mornings looking at a couple of books in the Bible that many Christians can't find and which many more don't understand? And I did hear a prolonged rustling of the pages when the reading was announced. It's a good question. After all, what similarity is there between a small, humanly insignificant group of God's people living in difficult times who are beginning to gather together again and us? Well... Okay, hang on, maybe there is some connection between what they were going through in Ezra and Nehemiah and, and what we are going through today. Now, when we come to books like these, which are not as well known as many others, we need to take some time to understand their context. Why are they here? What's going on that's prompted the action to take place that's recorded for us? What lessons are there for us to learn? So we're going to use this morning to get a handle on these books and see how they fit. See, it's important we don't jump straight in without understanding the situation that these people faced. You see, that's what some other preachers have done in the past. And you may well think, as we come to Ezra and Nehemiah, that it's all about building walls and being a good leader. That certainly would be the summary of sermons I've heard preached about this book. The trouble is, that's not the thrust of this book. In fact, it's almost the complete opposite this book is not about being a good leader. It's actually about how human schemes, however well-intentioned, are doomed to failure. And by the way, if you hear me talking about Ezra and Nehemiah as if it's a single book, it's actually because that's what it is. It was regarded that way uh, until about 700 years after the events recorded in it, when a, a guy called Origen in the 3rd century AD divided them into two. And we have these two books in our Bible, in our Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah. But originally they were one, and we're going to be dealing with them in that way and seeing their unity. So let's try and understand this book of Ezra, Nehemiah. Let's put it in context. And in doing so, we'll be learning some basic Bible handling skills that will profit us whenever we examine any book of the Bible. For there are three areas that we need to consider, that, that you need to consider if you're looking at a book in the Bible. What questions, what areas do you need to grasp? Well, the first of these is history. History. What's going on? How does it fit? What's the surrounding situation? Well, let's have a warp speed journey through the Old Testament, slowing down 
as we, preach, uh, as we approach our destination. So, how does it begin? Well, it begins because God creates the world and he promises a rescuer to deal with the sin and the rebellion of humanity. He determines to raise up that rescuer through the family line of a childless idolater called Abraham. The family grows. It goes into slavery in Egypt. It grows some more. And then it exits for their new homeland where they displace the wicked Canaanite nations. However, the people are still rebellious. And God raises up a succession of leaders or prophets to help them. And these were known as the judges. And it's during this time that the events in the book of Ruth took place. At the people's request, God appoints their first king, Saul, but he turns out to be a huge disappointment. However, he's succeeded by great King David and his son Solomon, and this is the high watermark of Israel's political history. They experience peace and wealth and power, and many of the Psalms and Proverbs were written during this time, along with the Song of Songs that we've been looking at in previous weeks. And the great temple in the capital city, Jerusalem, was built at this time under Solomon. But during the reign of Solomon's son Rehoboam, the nation of Israel that was made up of those 12 tribes split into two. The northern kingdom of 10 tribes was based around Samaria, and it didn't have one decent king in its whole history. Whereas the southern kingdom of Judah, that was made up of those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that was based around Jerusalem, had some kings who still wanted to please God. And during this time, we have a number of prophets sent by God to both kingdoms who kept calling them back to the covenant commitment that God had made with them way back when they had come out of Egypt. And they make up almost half the books of our Old Testament. But the people still won't change their ways. So in 722 BC, the Assyrians overrun and they destroy the northern kingdom, scattering those ten tribes around their vast territory in an attempt to dilute their national identity. And then just over 100 years later, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar invade Jerusalem and the southern kingdom for the first time in 605 BC. And over a period of about 20 years, they deport almost the entire population on block to Babylon, destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, destroying its walls in 587 BC. Only the poorest of the poor are left in the land. Now, during this terrible time, a prophet called Jeremiah kept warning the people about their behavior. He kept saying, look, you've broken the covenant. This is the inevitable consequence of your actions. You're going to go into exile, uh, as God has promised. But he told them that that wasn't going to be the end. He told them that God would restore them to their land. And sure enough, the Babylonian empire was overthrown by the Persians led by King Cyrus. And he, in his first year of rule, adopted a different strategy by allowing conquered groups to return to their homelands. 
and live there as subject peoples. And by the way, if you're into archaeology, you can go looking for the uh, Cyrus Cylinder, where this decree was actually uh, recorded. And so, after having lived in Babylonian exile for two to three generations, a small, ragtag group of people returned to Judah to rebuild the temple. And that's where the book of Ezra begins. Okay, we've got some sense of the times in which they're living and some sense of the challenges they would face. Now, let me just say this in passing. You don't have to know all this history to understand or appreciate this book. It stands on its own merits, but it helps. And that's why access to a good study Bible or a Bible handbook can come in very useful. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you read your Bible regularly, which I hope you do, I hope you've got something like that that can help you. So the different books that you're going to be encountering, you've got somewhere that you can make reference to them. So a good study Bible, good Bible handbook will give you some of this information, which always comes in useful in understanding the context of the books that we're reading. Now, having sorted out the history, we can turn to the second area of our investigation. When we focus down on the book under consideration. And we see how it's been shaped. And we can examine and see what its central message is. So I'm, I'm calling that this story. We've looked at history. Now this is this story. And when you come to Ezra Nehemiah, what you discover is that it's made up of five distinct and clear sections. Uh, and so probably you'll be seeing on screen, certainly here we can, but you'll be seeing on screen how this is divided. The first section encompasses Ezra chapters 1 to 6. And that's all about the return to rebuild the temple. Sheshbazar leads the first group of returnees, and then Zerubbabel comes to help. Now it begins with great hope, and expectation, but they're hampered by a variety of delays. The temple is then completed in chapter 6. They celebrate the Passover, and there's great joy. So that's the first in this section. By the way, if, if you want uh, the, the completed outline that we're, we're, we're working through, just email me, and I'll send you the uh, PowerPoint slides over. Let's come to the second section. Ezra 7, Ezra 7 to 10, it begins with the words, after these things. Actually, there's been a period of about 60 years between the end of chapter 6 and the start of chapter 7. And what we discover is the building of the temple hasn't sorted the problem of the heart. They need God's word to be applied so Ezra, and here he comes into the story for the first time, Ezra leaves his job as secretary for Jewish affairs in the Persian government, and he travels with another bunch of returnees to Jerusalem. And one of the first things Ezra discovers is that there's been a lot of intermarriage between the Jews who had returned earlier 
and the surrounding pagan nations. So Ezra develops the teaching of the Torah, that's their book of the law, and he tells the Jewish men to put away their foreign wives. And the book, Ezra, ends with a list of those who had married foreign women, which is a very strange ending to a book, but there it is. You come to the third section, and that's where we get into Nehemiah. And the first section there comprises the first seven chapters, Nehemiah 1 to 7. Now, just as chapter 7 of Ezra began 60 years after the previous section, when we come to Nehemiah, that starts about 20 years after Ezra had returned. Because Nehemiah's heard that the building of the temple and the reintroduction of the Torah, the Jewish law book, hasn't really worked. God's people are in disgrace. Jerusalem is a broken down, barely populated city. So Nehemiah sets off to Jerusalem with the king's blessing and after 52 days of work, completes the wall, despite many setbacks. So that's the third section of Ezra and Nehemiah. The fourth section of Ezra Nehemiah runs from chapter 8 into the first part of chapter 12. And when we come into this section, hey, hip hip hooray, it's the high point of the book. This is good news. People come together. The law is read and explained. The covenant is celebrated. A glorious prayer is shared. And a new agreement is signed by the people and they begin to populate the city and they dedicate the walls. Hey, it looks good. Great. Good story. Until we come to the final section. From the second part of verse uh, of chapter 12 into chapter 13. Because after this great climax, there comes the anticlimax. In the final section, we discover that for all they've done, which is a lot, there's still a lot lacking. It's still incomplete. They are still waiting for the complete fulfillment of Jeremiah's promises. For the temple is misused, and the law is ignored, and the walls are abused, and great leader Nehemiah loses his patience and starts beating people up. And very deliberately, we're left in limbo. Is, is that it? Is this how the story ends? How disappointing. How really strange. Now, one way that we could use the next five Sunday mornings is to take each of these five sections and work through the book in that way. But I want to do it another way, for there are certain themes that deliberately run through the whole book, and I'd like to focus on these in coming weeks. So next week, we'll be looking at the theme of continuity. Continuity, how they, and indeed we, identify with something bigger. Week two, we're going to be looking at conflict. 
We're going to be noticing how they responded to continual opposition and noticing how we should respond. Week three, we're going to be looking at their confidence and we'll see how in their best moments they are characterized by trusting in God, by rejoicing in the covenant and by responding in prayer. On the fourth week, we're going to be looking at their contribution because this is a community in action. Different gifts are being used and sacrificial service is offered. And what a challenge that will be to us in our own individualistic age. And then on our final Sunday in these studies, we'll be looking at conviction. This book is here to remind us that God rules and that he's doing something bigger and that our job is to trust him and to serve him for his glory, whatever the outward circumstances might be. But the third and final way we can look at Ezra and Nehemiah, and indeed any book of the Bible, is to locate it within the overall arc of the Bible's big story. So we go from history to this story to his story, his story. For even though the Bible is made up of 66 books written over a period of 1,400 years by over 35 authors, there is one remarkable unifying theme to the whole. It's the story of God's amazing grace that points to his amazing glory. And the big question that we need to ask any Bible passage is how it locates within this big storyline. What does it tell us about ourselves? What does it reveal about God? And how does it point us to Jesus, the Savior and King? Because when we've asked and answered that question, we find how to connect events that happened many years ago to where we are today. In fact, this makes the Bible the most relevant and up-to-date book that you could ever read. And this happens with Ezra and Nehemiah. Let me just pick out three ways as we draw to a conclusion. We could pick out many other points of contact that will relate to us and Ezra and Nehemiah. But let me pick out just three. The first is this, God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Look at the very first verse of Ezra, Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, and then we go into the events. See, why do we read about these people making a massively tiring and difficult journey to Jerusalem? It's to remind us that when God speaks, he keeps his word. It's always true, always reliable. That's why the name of God used here that we have in capital letters, the Lord, Yahweh, describes God's covenant-keeping nature. You see, God said they would return. And return, they did. 
And throughout the Bible, and not just here, we are given constant reminders that whatever the situation, God is faithful to all his promises. Um, If you were to go into my office up here um, in our church building, you'd discover some of the these promises that I've printed and I've got stuck in my wall in front of me because it's, it's connecting with God's word. This is where it fits in the ark of his great mercy. Let me give you some of these verses. Isaiah 41 verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Here is a promise of God And and it connects to us. It may have been written years ago, but it's God's promise that he perfectly keeps. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What comfort. Matthew 28.20, I am with you always. To the end of the age. Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. How wonderful for those of us who've been born again by the Spirit who are united in Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 9.8, this is one of the most special, I think. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This is the promise of God. You see, Ezra and Nehemiah connects me to and reminds me of great Bible promises that our great God will never fail in. And maybe there are some situations you're facing when what you need to do is to stop and remember the promises of God. Well, you need to go back to his word and hold on to that word and say, here is the God who's true and faithful. I see it in Ezra. I see it throughout scripture. And it connects to me now. His word is living and powerful. His promises are sure and precious. You think maybe Christians talking about promises is just one of those weird, airy, fairy things. It is not. It is the most solid, substantial, glorious thing we do as Christians to remind ourselves This is our God, and these are his promises, and I know he is faithful. Okay, let's move on to the second area. We've talked about God's faithfulness. I want us to notice, secondly, God's rule. God's rule comes through here. Let's go back to that first verse and continue reading it. Ezra 1.1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. You see, Cyrus was the most powerful man on earth. And what happens? God directs him to do his will. Ultimately, it wasn't Cyrus who was in charge but the living God. 
And it wasn't just Cyrus that God ruled over. It's recorded that there was King Artaxerxes as well. There in Ezra 7, chapter, uh, verse 27, we read this. And remember, this is sometime later than Ezra 1.1. But there we read this. Praise to the Lord. Here are the people. Here's Ezra. Praise to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it into the king's heart. He's put it into the king's heart. This is King Artaxerxes. To bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. See, so here's this tiny bunch of people. They number probably round about 50,000. Settled in an insignificant outpost of the Persian Empire. Surrounded on all sides by enemies. And they're able to declare confidently that God rules. He's in charge and we're his servants. And today, the reality is that born-again believers in Scotland constitute less than 2% of the population. Less than 2% of the population. We once mattered. The worship of God was once central to this life of this land, but, but no longer. We're a tiny minority surrounded by a hostile culture and ignored by the political establishment. But we know this. God reigns. He's ultimately in control. He can change the hearts of other Scots just as easily as he changed the heart of great King Cyrus and great King Artaxerxes. And we know this. God reigns. Whatever the situations I'm facing, however difficult the problems I encounter, however painful the disappointments I experience, however strong the opposition I face, we sing with others, hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. And we join with the Apostle Paul, who wrote, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? My friends, this is our hope. This is our confidence. This keeps us going through dark and difficult times. As a pastoral team here at the church, we're aware of some of the problems and issues that are facing many people in our church congregation. And we, we're aware of some of the struggles that you're going through. And we can help a little. But you know, the greatest help we can give you is to declare time and time and time again is that God rules. He's in control. He's working out his purposes for his glory. He hasn't forgotten you, as we've said. He's faithful. And he is ruling. I want to conclude by the third area that we connect with this story. And it's God's plans. God's plans. Actually, we'll be looking at this in closer detail when we conclude our series but the strange, the incomplete, the unsatisfying endings of both Ezra and Nehemiah are very deliberate. They contain actually a great lesson for us. 
You see, by nature, we like happy endings. You know, the film ends with the couple riding off into the sunset. Or the novel ends with the lawyer discovering the truth and exposing the criminals. Or the sitcom ends with Ross and Rachel getting together. And if you don't get that reference, ask your parents. And here in Ezra Nehemiah, we're being set up. You see, the the book began with a reference to the prophecies of Jeremiah. And these would have been fresh in the memories of those who are making the journey back to Jerusalem from exile. And indeed, they would have been known to all Jewish readers of the book. But just listen to some of the stuff that Jeremiah spoke about. Remember, they're thinking about this. Jeremiah 33, verses 7 to 9. God says, I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. So you can sense the anticipation This is it. As they're walking back to this land, that outpost, they're going, this is it. We're going to establish God's kingdom. We're going to experience all those blessings that Jeremiah talked about. We're no longer going to be the poor boy on the block. We'll be the top dogs. And so... They rebuild the temple and they restore the place of the law and they repair the city walls and they celebrate the Passover. But but nothing. The old problems of the heart remain. And we finish the book by saying to ourselves, there must be something more. There must be something more more. They did some good stuff, but it's only God who can fulfill his promises and establish his kingdom and deal with sin. So they're left looking ahead. This unsatisfactory ending means they're still looking, they're still anticipating and of course about 430 years later the promised rescuer was born the ultimate and final sacrifice was then made on calvary's cross by jesus the messiah the promised one and the new covenant of grace was established and just as they look forward with hope to such a day, we look back with deep gratitude. We can see it back. We look back with deep gratitude to the work of Jesus. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit to change lives from the inside out and with the new community of faith growing around the world, we stand confidently in that stream. But we're still waiting. We're still looking. We're still anticipating that day when Jesus will come again. 
when every eye actually will see him, when every mouth will have to confess who he is. They don't now. You go outside and say, can I tell you about Jesus? And they say, hey, isn't he a swear word that's used by so many people? There is coming a day when every eye will see and every tongue will confess and King Jesus will be seen as King Jesus. And sin will be dealt with. And God's new eternal kingdom will be established. And that rule of which Jeremiah is speaking about, it will be realized perfectly, gloriously. What we hope for, what we are still longing for, that day is coming. My friends, that day is coming as surely as the exiles return to Jerusalem. And like them, we need to wait in hope, in faith, in expectation. And what do we do until that time? What do we do until Christ comes? What do we do until we see him face to face? We go on serving him with praise and with thanks and with deep delight. Let's pray. Father, our, our hearts ache within us for the return of Jesus. But Father, we're very conscious that there are many who we know and love, members of our family, members of our community, work colleagues who do not know and love Jesus in this way, who will know what it is to Confess Jesus as Lord, but to know the awful sentence as he separates them from his presence, as his wrath is poured out upon them consciously for all eternity. Father, in one sense we say, come Lord Jesus, come, but, but Lord, would you please save more? Would you please gather in more people to know and love you? And Lord, to that end, use us. May we not grow settled. May we not grow dull. But may we be keen to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords, knowing that he's in charge. Lord, you've made us to be the people that we are. You've given us the gifts we've got. And we screw up and fail. But we thank you that we have a saviour in Jesus. And we thank you that we can entrust ourselves to you completely. Lord, use folks even like us for your praise and glory while you tarry. And we ask it for our good, and we ask it for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.